included on the flyleaf. But two remain a mystery. I reviewed library collections and archives in some six states and three countries, looking to Longfellow's letters and journals for any hint as to the destination of those final privately printed Inferno volumes. Even contemporary newspaper columns announcing the arrival of prominent citizens and dignitaries to Boston, who might have paid a visit to Longfellow, and been presented with one of the precious ten, held out hope for the successful completion of my project. What I came across, hidden within polite literary achievement, was a story, a story I thought best to leave behind under the inscrutable shadows of history. Until I happened upon the above newspaper notice, during a long-neglected assignment on behalf of an entomological newsletter. Then I knew that Dante's remarkable pilgrimage into our world had not come to rest. Straying from my assigned task, I sought more. I learned that Kenneth Stanton wandered away from his family fishing trip in the Berkshire Mountains and stumbled upon a strange trail of dead animals on an overgrown path, first a raccoon with its navel engorged with blood, then a fox, farther in a black bear. The boy afterward recounted to his parents a feeling like hypnosis as he faced the grotesque sights. He lost his balance and fell hard onto a jagged line of rocks. Left unconscious and with a fractured ankle, he was beset all over his body by the primary screwworm blowflies that, as Dr. Landsman explained to me, are attracted by the warmth of fresh blood in which to lay their larvae or maggots. I learned also that five days after the above notice appeared, Kenneth Stanton, age eleven, succumbed to sudden convulsions and died of internal trauma. The autopsy found twelve maggots of the Cochleomia hominivorax, one of the world's deadliest insect species, extinct for fifty years, or so it was believed by experts. The maggots had burrowed deep into the boy's body and ravished his vital organs before themselves expiring. The boy was a grave, a sacrificial temple. The reawakened species of fly has been introduced since then to the Middle East, apparently through careless cargo shipments headed overseas, and has, as I write, decimated the livestock and economy of northern Iran. When I received the manuscript that follows, I felt myself enter a place I had known before in the details of dreams I longed not to retain. There are no archives cataloging what Henry Longfellow and his protectors discovered, what was resisted, what gloom and glory found witness among America's poets in the year Dante turned six hundred. I have agreed to write this preface, to introduce this story because I know every word and act therein to be true. And had I been quicker to understand, Kenneth Stanton, age eleven, might be mesmerized by an inciting professor at some ivied college. I only wish to caution you, reader. Please, if you continue here, remember first that words can bleed. C.L.K., Independent Scholar Canticle One Chapter One John Kurtz, the chief of the Boston police, breathed in some of his heft for a better fit between the two chambermaids. On one side, the Irish woman who had discovered the body was blubbering and wailing prayers unfamiliar, because they were Catholic, and unintelligible, because she was blubbering, that prickled the hair in Kurtz's ear. On the other side was her soundless and despairing niece. The parlor had a wide arrangement of chairs and couches, but the women had squeezed in next to the guest as they waited. He had to concentrate on not spilling any of his tea. The black haircloth divan was rattling so hard with their shock. 
Kurtz had faced other murders as chief of police. Not enough to make it routine, though, usually one a year or two. Often Boston would pass through a twelve-month period without a homicide worth noticing. Those few who were murdered were of the low sort, so it had not been a necessary part of Kurtz's position to console. He was a man too impatient with emotion to have excelled at it anyway. Deputy Police Chief Edward Savage, who sometimes wrote poetry, might have done better. This, this was the only name Chief Kurtz could bear to attach to the horrifying situation that was to change the life of a city, was not only a murder. This was the murder of a Boston Brahmin, a member of the aristocratic, Harvard-schooled, Unitarian-blessed drawing-room cast of New England. And the victim was more than that. He was the highest official of the Massachusetts courts. This had not only killed a man, as sometimes murders do almost mercifully, but had obliterated him entirely. The woman they were anticipating in the best parlor of White Oaks had boarded the first train she could in Providence after receiving the telegram. The train's first-class cars lumbered forward with irresponsible leisure, but now that journey, like everything that had come before, seemed part of an unrecognizable oblivion. She had made a wager with herself and with God that if her family minister had not yet arrived at her house by the time she got there, the telegram's message had been mistaken. It didn't quite make sense, this half-articulated wager of hers, but she had to invent something to believe, something to keep from fainting dead away. Edna Healy, balanced on the threshold of terror and loss, stared at nothing. Entering her parlor, she saw only the absence of her minister and fluttered with unreasoning victory. Kurtz, a robust man with mustard coloring under his bushy mustache, realized he was trembling. He had rehearsed the exchange on the carriage ride to White Oaks. Madam, how very sorry we are to call you back to this. Understand that Chief Justice Healy... No, he had meant to preface that. We thought it best, he continued, to explain the unfortunate circumstances here, you see, in your own house, where you'd be most comfortable. He thought this idea a generous one. You couldn't have found Judge Healy, Chief Kurtz, she said, and ordered him to sit. I'm sorry you've wasted this call, but there's some simple mistake. The Chief Justice was, is, staying in Beverly for a quiet few days of work while I visited Providence with our two sons. He is not expected back until tomorrow. Kurtz did not claim responsibility for refuting her. Your chambermaid, he said, indicating the bigger of the two servants, found his body, madam, outside near the river. Nell Ranny, the chambermaid, welled with guilt for the discovery. She did not notice that there were a few blood-stained maggot remains in the pouch of her apron. It appears to have happened several days ago. Your husband never departed for the country, I'm afraid, Kurtz said, worried he sounded too blunt. Edna Healy wept slowly at first, as a woman might for a dead household pet, reflective and governed but without anger. The olive-brown feather protruding from her hat nodded with dignified resistance. Nell looked at Mrs. Healy longingly, then said with great humanity, "'You ought to come back later in the day, Chief Kurtz, if you please.' John Kurtz was grateful for the permission to escape White Oaks. He walked with appropriate solemnity towards his new driver, a young and handsome patrolman who was letting down the steps of the police carriage. There was no reason to hurry, not with what must be brewing already over this at the central station, between the frantic city alderman and Mayor Lincoln, 
who already had him by the ears for not raiding enough gambling hells and prostitution houses. A terrible scream cleaved the air before he had walked very far. It belched forth in light echoes from the house's dozen chimneys. Kurtz turned and watched with foolish detachment as Edna Healy, feather hat flying away and hair unloosed in wild peaks, ran onto the front steps and launched a streaking white blur straight for his head. Kurtz would later remember blinking. It seemed all he could do to prevent catastrophe, to blink. He bowed to his helplessness. The murder of Artemis Prescott Healy had finished him already. It was not the death itself. Death was as common a visitor in 1865 Boston as ever. Infant sicknesses, consumption and unnamed and unforgiving fevers, uncontainable fires, stampeding riots, young women perishing in childbirth in such great number, it seemed they had never been meant for this world in the first place. And until just six months ago, war, which had reduced thousands upon thousands of Boston boys to names written on black-bordered notices and sent to their families. But the meticulous and nonsensical, the elaborate and meaningless destruction of a single human being at the hands of an unknown... Kurtz was yanked down hard by his coat and tumbled into the soft, sun-drenched lawn. The vase thrown by Mrs. Healy shattered into a thousand blue and ivory shards against the paunch of an oak, one of the trees said to have given the estate its name. Perhaps, Kurtz thought, he should have sent Deputy Chief Savage to handle this after all. Patrolman Nicholas Ray, Kurtz's driver, released his arm and lifted him to his feet. The horses snorted and reared at the end of the carriageway. He did all he knew how. We all did. We didn't deserve this, whatever they say to you, Chief. We didn't deserve any of this. I'm all alone now.